Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with a very special guest of ours and a good friend of mine. I consider her a good friend of mine now that we've known each other for a couple years. Dr. Kelsey Clutie from the University of Nebraska Medical Center at the Fred and Pamela Buffett Cancer Center. I said that right, Dr. Clutie? You got it. I got it. I got it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I know we had some technical difficulties the last time we were in Nebraska, so uh, we really appreciate it. I know I'm sure our audience will appreciate it, taking time out of your busy schedule, seeing patients, to be on our podcast. We had originally tried to record some uh, episodes when we were out in Nebraska, and unfortunately, with technology, you, know, you can never trust it. Uh, we had some technical difficulties, so thank you for taking time to, uh, to come back on the podcast here over the phone. Of course. So for our audience at home... I always uh, love, you know, I know you've gotten to know you pretty well over the last two years, as I've said in my opening, with our relationship with the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and we're excited that you're there now helping the pancreatic cancer community on the medical oncology side. Give our audience at home a little bit of your background, and I always tell our guests, you can tell as much of your background as you want or as little so it can you can go into some of the family stuff or you can just stick with uh just the work stuff (laughs) sure (laughs) um so i i guess i am from bismarck north dakota that's where i grew up um and no eventually landed in medical school and did a did a residency in internal medicine and fellowship in medical oncology, um, and then landed here at University of Nebraska Medical Center working as a medical oncologist. Um, I primarily take care of patients who have cancers in their GI tract, so I really take care of everything from the esophagus, um, stomach, pancreas, liver, gallbladder, bile ducts bowel, including colon, rectum, and anus. I think that's everything I treat. That's a lot to remember. Do you, but do you specialize? I mean, right now with the way that medicine is going and, and I know like there's probably what, what cases do you see more often than not? Uh, the, probably the, the diagnosis I see most often is pancreas cancer. Um, part of that is because, you know, patients, who are seen throughout the community often come to be seen at a bigger center for pancreas cancer, either, you know, partially because they're afraid and so many come to get a second opinion, or many come here for their surgery because most smaller hospitals don't offer surgery for pancreas cancer. And so a lot of those patients land in our care here at the Um, University Medical Center, and also because, you know, that's kind of my primary area of interest research-wise, and so I think that's becoming more well-known, and so other physicians often send patients to me with pancreas cancer because of that. Awesome, awesome. And now you did your residency not too far from where we are here in Connecticut in New York City, correct? My fellowship. Fellowship, Yeah, I was in New York City at Cornell for three years. Awesome. So Upper East Side. So you went. So you, you you did your undergrad was at the university. If I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe if my memory serves me right, you were at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Then you did your graduate work. Uh, North Dakota. North Dakota, and then your fellowship. I did residency in St. Louis. That's right. At WashU, and then fellowship at Cornell, well, New York Presbyterian in uh, Manhattan. And then now you're at UNMC. So you've got, I mean, you, you talk about, I mean, you know, for those that are in the medical community, I mean, those are, WashU is a, an outstanding institution. You know, Cornell is really um, got some great medical oncologists. Someone that I know we are very good friends with, both of us. I know you're probably closer to her than I am is Dr. Allison Ocean, who is in this space that's doing some amazing things there in the New York City area. 
And then, you know, Minnesota um, has got some great research in the pancreas uh, side. And I know they've been doing some stuff recently um, involving pancreas cancer that's really exciting in the Midwest there. And then now you're at UNMC, which, you know, we've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years and there's some amazing things and you're part of that. So you've been pretty, uh, I would say pretty spoiled then uh, a little bit to (laughs) be at some pretty amazing institutions. Yeah, I've I've been in some really good places along the way. So what was like the decision making in that? Was it just like circumstance or did you have that kind of lined out like or planned out I should say? Not, Not necessarily lined up but planned out like when you went into minnesota like you knew hey i was going to go to washu and then i was going to go to new york and then i was going to kind of come back to you know the midwest no no i had nothing planned. (laughs) nothing it all just happened it just kind of happened to me um i think you know i'd always kind of considered a career in medicine my mom is a nurse and she discouraged it she thought i should be a pharmacist (laughs) um but I, you know, I did the science background in undergrad. I, I think I did biochemistry and physiology. Um, and then it was kind of like, well, I don't know what to do now. So I applied to med school and I got in. So I decided to go and then just kind of carried on from there. Um, so then why go a couple steps further beyond that? <laughs> Why pancreatic cancer? Like, why, you know, GI, you know, why that focus? Yeah, to some degree, you know, it kind of just happened by chance. I mean, I during my internal medicine residency, I really kind of fell in love with oncology. Um, just the relationship you get to build with the patients and their families combined with a lot of opportunities for research a lot of change happening in the field makes for, you know, it's kind of an exciting career opportunity. Um, And then during my fellowship, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but landed with a mentor who primarily did, you know, treated patients with gastrointestinal cancers. Actually, he primarily took care of people with stomach and esophagus cancer. Um, so really started to, you know, become interested in, you know, focusing more on GI oncology. And then um, as I kind of was starting to look at job opportunities, my husband is from Nebraska and his family has a business here. So he obviously had some interest in landing in Nebraska and then come to kind of find out about all the basic science research that's going on here um, at the the cancer center in pancreas cancer, you know, it just, it really kind of made sense for me to primarily focus on pancreas cancer. In some ways, feels a little bit like fate. My grandfather um, was diagnosed with pancreas cancer during my let's see, my first year of medical school, actually died of pancreas cancer just before I graduated. So I don't know, I guess everything kind of came full circle, how it was supposed to happen, maybe. Well, that's fascinating about your grandfather. I didn't know that. And I always ask the question, and I know it's a hard question because it makes you kind of look back, you know, and there's some, some of those decisions. And naturally, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But we're thankful that you're in the space regardless of why you decided to be on the space, quite honestly, I just think it's kind of fascinating and interesting to see what uh, what doctors and scientists, how they decided that tract. Because as you know, I don't think, for one, this is not a glamour cancer. Um, and what do I mean by that is there's not a lot of money in it, first of all. So I think from a clinical standpoint, and I know we've talked about this, just the challenges of finding resources sometimes can be difficult. Um, you know, for projects and for funding and stuff like that. And then also it's a very hard cancer. There's not a lot of survivors. And so you deal with, you know, a lot of patients that unfortunately, you know, uh, are going to, you know, succumb to the disease because the disease is what it is. So it, it takes a very special person to know every day that you're going to work and you're, you're trying to change this, you know, evil cancer that I call you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what you're dealing with day in, day out. It's not easy. So thank you for doing what you do, Dr. Yeah, of course. And I would say, you know, it is 
there it's a tough disease, but even in the past five years, a lot has changed. And some of the exciting part about it is I hope that as I move forward in my career, in five years and ten years, a whole lot will have changed. Um, kind of like, you know, people who've been taking care of breast cancer patients for, for 30 years talk about, you know, how how it's such a different disease today than it was at, when they started their career. Absolutely. And absolutely. And hopefully we get there a lot sooner than they did. Um, <laughs> right? Like, you know, if we can do it in five to ten, that would be great. Yeah. And then you could worry about other cancers like, uh, you know, esophageal or stomach or whatever the case may be and not so yeah, much yeah. pancreas. So for our audience at home, now you're a medical oncologist. So you Correct. you deal with the patients on the front end with regards to chemotherapy and treatments. So what are some of the things I, I want to give our audience kind of from your perspective, the symptoms that you see most common in the clinic uh, for patients that are diagnosed. Granted, you're not the first response or the first responder to the disease because usually that's the general practitioners. You know, patients are going there first or they're going to some other specialty doctor that's uh, G- like a gastroenterologist first and then realizing that they have to go see a medical oncologist once they are confirmed that they have the disease, correct or incorrect? Yeah, that's correct. Most most of my patients come to me with a diagnosis. So fortunately for me, I'm generally not the one who has to break the bad news and, you know, announce this terrifying diagnosis to the patient. So do you find, Dr. Clutie, with the majority of the patients that come in are, you know, and, and I know we've talked about this at length here and with other doctors and scientists, symptoms because I mean that's like the one thing because we don't have an early detection test yet and I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch the subject about the early detection clinic that just opened up actually yesterday or today um, there in Nebraska that we've been instrumental in helping get up off the ground but are, are, you know are the majority of the patients that you're currently seeing are you seeing a symptom that is kind of across the board more often than other than other symptoms with the patients that are coming into you? Not necessarily. Patients get diagnosed with pancreas cancer through, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Most of them through some symptom, though it's there's no specific symptom or symptom complex, you know, kind of combination of symptoms that are specific for pancreas cancer. Um, And there's a rare minority of patients who get diagnosed because they had a scan for some other reason. So, you know, to follow up a lung nodule or to look at a kidney lesion and they see something in the pancreas. So the, you know, most common symptoms that patients who get diagnosed with pancreas cancer have are history of abdominal pain or back pain. Um, sometimes they present with jaundice or skin and eyes turning yellow, and that's from the bile ducts getting blocked by typically by a mass in the pancreas. Um, many of them have weight loss. Um, those are kind of the most common ways that people end up, you know, having a workup that leads to a diagnosis of pancreas cancer. Um, the problem is many of these patients have had these symptoms for a while, and it can take a while to kind of get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is that, you know, there's a lot of things that cause abdominal pain. There's a lot of things that cause back pain. There's a lot of things that cause weight loss. And so, you know, when somebody goes in to their primary care doctor with those symptoms, you know, pancreas cancer usually isn't the first thing that they think of. And part of their job is to go through a list of what are all the possibilities and start with the most likely and kind of try to rule those out before moving on to less common causes for somebody to develop those types of symptoms. Yeah, I think we, you know, we still have to do such a better job. I think of, uh, I I wouldn't say like, um, just a better job as a whole in giving, I think, the general public better indicators of the disease. And I think with the symptoms, and what I mean by that is like they they vary, right? Like some people I know from talking to patients, like some people 
don't turn jaundice. And right. some people don't lose weight necessarily like other people. I know I've heard stories of, you know, a guy, one of the survivors that we have locally, like he talked about a flutter in his stomach that wouldn't mm-hmm. go away. And that was the only symptom he had. And he mm-hmm. was status quo, life is normal, nothing out of the ordinary other than this flutter. And, um, you know, there's other folks that, you know, have turned, you know, bright yellow um, because of the jaundice, you know, and, and because of the blockage. So it's really, really fascinating. So with that being said, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, do you think as a scientific community, do we know enough about this disease? No. So what do you think then we, if there were a couple things, if you had to pick like a top three, what do you think we could do to better that knowledge? What are some of the things we could do? And without, you know, looking at like from a reality of like, hey, we would need, you know, 150 million to do this. But if there was like a blank check out there and what would be your top three in your professional opinion that we could become better at immediately if the resources and, uh, you know, money was not an issue? Um, I think, let me see. I think if we could develop a screening test or a combination of screening tests that could reliably detect pancreas cancer at a very early stage, meaning a small tumor in the pancreas that's probably never going to cause any sort of symptoms for a patient who has it, that that would be number one. Number two would be... Um, if we could figure out a way to identify patients who develop type 2 diabetes because of pancreas cancer, um, we could probably detect 50-60% of pancreas cancer in a much earlier stage. So the idea behind that is that about 1% of people, who adults, who develop diabetes um, will go on to be diagnosed with pancreas cancer within three or four years of their diagnosis of diabetes. And the reason behind that is that the the pancreas cancer, even at a very early stage, can cause problems with the pancreas's ability to produce insulin and other hormones that regulate blood glucose. And so... If we could figure out which of the, you know, millions of people diagnosed with diabetes, which of those are the 1% who have diabetes because of pancreas cancer, we could that would help a lot to to identify this disease earlier in that population. Awesome. And then number 3, would you say, I mean because I and I'm just trying to be realistic about this and I know this this is a very difficult question and I put you on the spot. What would you think in terms of treatment? Because naturally there are going to be, I mean, if we can get it early for the majority of the people, fantastic, because we know that that will prolong life and potentially give them an opportunity to eliminate the cancer surgically or through treatments. But do you feel the current state of what we have in terms of treatment protocols is sufficient? Oh, no, we need much better treatment. Um Certainly, you know, certainly what we have, there are selected patients who it works very well for, the chemotherapy that we use, um, or a combination of surgery, sometimes radiation and chemotherapy, can cure actually a significant proportion of people who are, you know, have disease that is amenable to all those therapies. But the truth is that for most patients, Surgery is not an option. So absolutely, more effective treatment for particularly patients with advanced disease and the ability to kind of select the right treatment for the right cancer. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of talk, and I know we we saw each other uh, at ASCO GI, and I know Steve Leach, who is now at Dartmouth, who was at MSK, talked about you know their findings with the, the genomics, you know, and how they realized that with you know, BRCA-positive patients, they fared better on a certain protocol 
because of the BRCA gene mutation being responsible for pancreas disease than patients that weren't BRCA positive on that same protocol. And they actually, I believe he said they prolonged life and had better quality of life. So I think as a whole, we're starting to understand and learn more and more about these gene mutations and these tumors and how they react to certain treatments. Oh, absolutely. I think we're we're barely scratching the surface of that in terms of what what potential there is. So let's shift gears a little bit, but stay on subject here. What we just talked about, you talked about the diabetes. We talked a little bit about treatments, which kind of falls in the lines of like clinical trials, and then also about the genomics. We're excited to have partnered with you guys multiple times, but uh, recently last year we uh, funded kind of the baseline um, or the starting funding for the early detection clinic, which I mentioned, and let's just talk briefly about it. I know you don't deal with it day in, day out, but have a part in it as part of the team there. So I know yesterday, I believe, was it yesterday or today? And this will air in a couple of weeks, so this won't be chronologically correct. So let's just say the end of July here is when the clinic was opened. Um, And talk a little bit about what they're doing there. Yeah, so basically what we're trying to do uh, research-wise is to establish kind of a collection of blood samples from individuals who are, I would say they're at higher than average risk of developing pancreas cancer in their lifetime. So we're basically, we're collecting blood from them um, and kind of just hanging on to it, looking at some blood markers, but collecting blood about every six months with the idea that a handful, you know, maybe up to three or four percent of the of the people who we identify to include in this in this study will go on to develop pancreas cancer and we'll have a very valuable resource from them. And that's blood samples from could be from years before their diagnosis. So the goal is to use those samples to try to identify blood markers of early pancreas cancer that could then potentially be used for screening clinics, early detection efforts for patients in the future. Um, We're also, as part of this effort, we're also trying to understand the better the relationship between diabetes and pancreas cancer and doing some additional testing on patients with new onset diabetes to try to see if we can find a marker for patients who may have developed diabetes because of their pancreas cancer Um, and trying to sort out a bit better kind of the symptom complex which proceeds could precede a diagnosis of pancreas cancer um, we're kind of collecting this information from healthy people. And so basically they just are asked about every six months about any symptoms they may be having. We're trying to collect it prospectively like this because a lot of work that's been done asks patients who have pancreas cancer, what symptoms did you have? And, you know, that kind of Data collection can be a bit flawed because what actually happened and what people remember is not—it's not always the same. And so we're trying to, you know, strategically collect that data in a in a way that could be could be could possibly identify kind of a prodrome or symptom complex that could predict someone's risk of develop of you know having the symptoms because of a pancreas cancer. So it's really Kelsey for our audience listening at home it's really kind of a roadmap hopefully right in terms of how these people because no one really knows how the disease like it, okay so you have this uh let's back up for a second you have this gene mutation let's say or you have this you know you you're over 40 you get diabetes, you're healthy, you've never had an issue of, of diabetes in your family, but you get it. And we know that there's a likelihood with either a gene mutation or with diabetes that potentially you will get the disease. But it's really trying to create a roadmap to see what that trigger is that makes 
that gene or that issue be, or that, yeah, that really that gene or that, that cell to become cancerous. Exactly. And we're trying to, trying to identify kind of simple, simple things that can be picked up along the way that may, that in the future could hopefully make a primary care doctor more likely to think, oh, this could be pancreas cancer for their patient who has some dull abdominal pain. That's so, I mean, I get really excited about it. I mean, clearly it's a, it's a project that uh, I know from talking to one of your uh, colleagues there, Dr. Hollingsworth, over the last couple of years who we've worked with and about that project. And, you know, uh, I, I just can't wait, you know, if we could fast forward and hop in a time machine and, and go forward five years, I'd love to see what, I, I mean, I cannot wait to see the great stuff that's going to come out of it. And uh, I'm really excited for it. So we're excited that you're being, you know, you're playing a part in that and everything that's going on at UNMC. So thanks for sharing that with our audience at home. Yeah, of course. We're very excited too. Well, I've got a couple of hard questions here for you. And and this is this is gonna be um, you know, a little bit of thinking here. If I gave you a blank check today, and let's say said Dr. Cludie, here's a blank check, invested in pancreatic cancer research, where would you put it? I would I would put it toward early detection. I would I would put it toward, you know, our efforts to better identify patients with with early disease. Um, I don't know what more to say about that to make it sound good or fancy. Well, there's no good or fancy. I, I think you you hit the the nail right on top of the head because I think that's really critical with early detection, you know. So if we could find patients sooner then they are, you know, stage four, you know, they have a better chance of beating the disease and, you know, being able to have a, a more, more of a quality of life in terms of treatment protocol. And just, I think time and time is really of the essence, as you know, um, dealing with this day in, day out. What's the hardest case you've ever had? I've ever had. I mean, I'm sure they're all really difficult, but is there one, and, and maybe let me rephrase the question. Maybe there's like a patient that you've had over the years, maybe even, maybe even in residency that just really like, I mean, I, mean, I know it's, uh, as I said in the beginning, it's, it's probably the hardest job because you know, going in, you know, that these families are struggling and battling, but, um, you know, is there one patient that maybe stands out that you've had over the years that just, you know, someone that you'll never forget? Oh, I have a lot of patients I'll never forget. Um, I don't, I mean, medically, there's a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of tough medical cases, but just in terms of patient care and dealing with a difficult diagnosis, I think the hardest, the hardest thing for me is taking care of young patients with pancreas cancer who have young families. Um, or really, you know, patient, young patients with young families who have any cancer diagnosis is tough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when these when these patients develop stage four or metastatic disease, even even when we're you know planning to start treatment very early on in their treatment course, we start to have discussions about how the treatment we're offering is not, we don't expect that it will cure the cancer and likely they will die of their disease. Um, You know, patients who are older kind of have either, many of them don't have family, but many have, you know, grown families, grown children with children of their own. I mean, not that this diagnosis is easy for them, but when you talk to many of them about nearing the end of their life, it's they can find some peace with it because many of them, you know, acknowledge that I've lived a good life and you have to die of something. And, you know, so they're a little bit more accepting. It just feels so unfair when, you know, a young family has to lose a parent or, you know, a family member. Um at an earlier age, and I think there's a lot more struggle with kind of coming to terms with their mortality. Um, so those, to me, are the tough cases because 
we really get to know our patients well. Most of the time, you know, sometimes it feels like I see my patients more than I see my own family. Um, so, so you really start to get to know them and their family, and that that you really start to feel that loss with them. So, I think that those patients are kind of the most challenging um, from my point of view. And this disease is not, and that's one thing. And I'd love to hear your feedback on this. It's not an old person disease, right? I mean, there's... No, I mean, well, I, most people relative. are over the age of 60. Correct. But, but more and more we're seeing people in their 50s, 50s and 60s, which, you know, and I don't even too young. And I don't even, I mean, Dr. Cloutier, when I, I say old person disease, I'm talking about like 80 plus. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've met some 70-year-olds that are more active than some of the 20-year-olds that I meet, you know, in terms of their lifestyle and going to the gym. And I'm not saying about oh, partying, but, you know, just their livelihood. I mean, my father-in-law is 71 and he goes out six nights a week with his friends, with his, you know, my mother-in-law, and he plays golf five days a week. So his lifestyle is more active than a lot of 20-year-olds that I know. Um, so I think that's the hard thing. I think when people think of this disease, they think old, someone sitting in a wheelchair or someone, you know, like who's lived their life and is just waiting to pass away, which we, we all die, right? That's an inevitable. No one lives forever. Right. Um, but I think... You know, when you hear the story of the 40 or the 50-year-old, you know, and and someone who has the rest of their, I mean, we've been touched by so many families through the eight years, and I can't tell you how many spouses, you know, their children have run and their mom or dad have passed and the spouse has had, we've had these conversations like, hey, this was, you know, our retirement. We were ready to retire and enjoy the rest of the 30 years that we had left in life. You know, so I, I, I think it's um it's hard, you know, to Absolutely. see that happen. With... And, you know, I by no means mean to minimize, but, you no. know, having this diagnosis in, in a grandparent or, a, you know, somebody Correct. who's older in their later stages of life. But Yeah, um... yeah no, I agree. I, I think it's, I, I think the, you know, we've met so many families that have, and one of the things that, you know, that we do here with our patient financial aid program and, these aren't people applying for patient aid that, you know, are looking for, you know, uh, treatment, um, you know, treatment assistance or assistance for treatments. You know, they're looking to help buy groceries for their family and right, young family. Right. I mean, we had an application the other day come in on a 36-year-old who has three oh, kids, gosh. you know. So it's uh, – I think that's one thing that we really have to do, I think, as a whole because I think society as a whole here in the United States thinks that this is like an – old person's disease and it's not oh yeah it's absolutely not what are some of the things that you are seeing that have changed now you've been at unmc for almost three years right or two two and a half almost two years two years okay i was was speeding up a little bit but (laughs) in your time dealing in the medical oncology space with this disease I mean, what are you seeing changing? I mean, we we had a surgeon on recently. We talked a little bit about, you know, from the surgical aspect, you know, the Whipple is the same surgery that they've been doing since like the mid 50s. And there have been better, they've gotten really good at the Whipple, you know, in terms of, you know, whether they do treatment before and whether they do, you know, they get patients up and walking right away, which they didn't used to do. And they, you know, they got rid of, you know, the tubes, certain tubes. And, you know, they've, they've also gotten patients eating right away, which they didn't used to do. So they've gotten really good at that surgery. What are some of the things maybe that you can speak to over your experience over the last couple of years? And maybe some of it's been at UNMC, some of it maybe during your fellowship that you've seen in increases in the medical oncology side. With the disease, I mean, I think the the biggest change probably in the past five or six plus years has been our, you know, our the availability of more effective chemotherapy combinations. So, fulfirinox, which is a common chemotherapy recipe that we use to treat pancreas cancer was kind of first introduced in 2011 for patients with advanced disease. Um, And then gemcitabine and nabraxane, which is another most common combination for um, stage four disease and introduced around 2013. 
So as those combinations were introduced, we started introducing them, kind of giving them to patients before they had operations for pancreas cancer, before they went for their Whipple, which we don't know for sure. Nobody's done a big, you know, large, well-designed study to compare getting chemo before to getting chemo after surgery. But it appears that this kind of, Number one, improves the ability to do a good surgery, meaning do a good surgery and get, you know, remove all of the cancer and not leave, not leave cancer behind, um, but also likely incre- increases the, the likelihood of curing a pancreas cancer. So a big part of it is just timing of when we give the chemotherapy for a patient who has a cancer that looks like it could be removed with surgery. Um, I think the other kind of evolving changes is just the supportive care that we're able to give patients who are being treated for pancreas cancer. Um, Just in terms of nausea medication that we use with chemotherapy, as as you mentioned, some of the um, changes that have been made to kind of the care of the surgical patient with pancreas cancer Actually, if you look at the data from patients getting kind of the the old standard chemotherapy after surgery, gemcitabine, if you look at those patients from, you know, 2002 to 2018, those patients are doing better. They're getting the exact same treatment, same surgery, and same chemotherapy, but something's better. So it's probably some combination of better surgical techniques better imaging techniques, better supportive care, just everything else that happens besides the surgery and the drugs. Um, And then there's a lot changing actually with radiation techniques um, and some newer, kind of newer approaches have been introduced in the past five to 10 years that have allowed radiation doctors to deliver more focused radiation therapy to the pancreas, um, which we don't have again. We don't have big studies to prove this, but it seems that it likely improves the likelihood of cure for a patient who has a operable pancreas cancer. Awesome. What advice would you give a patient who is newly diagnosed? What are some of the things that uh, they should do, and some of the things they maybe they should ask their oncologist? Let's say they're in Southern California and they're listening to this podcast. They just got diagnosed. What are some of the things they should do and maybe some of the things they should ask when they go to that first oncology appointment? Sure. So my first advice would be that you, until you know the details of your disease, particularly the specific type of pancreas cancer that you have and the stage of disease that you have to stay off the internet (laughs) because there's a lot of information out there that is either very dated or may not be specific to your situation. And so that can instill a lot of fear in patients. I'll give an example of that, that I don't want to, talk bad about the American Cancer Society by any means because they do a lot of good for a lot of patients, but their website about pancreas cancer cites data from the 1990s, um, which I'm not saying that pancreas cancer has changed a lot, but for select patients, it has. Um, and so they they quote data that, you know, even with a stage one pancreas cancer, you're unlikely to be cured, which is absolutely not the case. Um, So I say, until you have all the details, stay off the internet, ask your doctor for some good resources to get information from. Um, Number two, I would say bring somebody, at least one person with you to your initial appointment with whichever, whoever you're seeing for your cancer, whether it be medical oncology, surgical oncology, because it can be incredibly overwhelming. So it's nice to have a second set of ears, and I think it's really nice to have a second set of ears from someone who's not necessarily, you know, a close family member, somebody who's a 
bit emotionally removed from the situation, who can kind of probably absorb information better, able to write down pertinent information, because most patients come back to their second appointment and re-ask a lot of the same questions because it's so overwhelming. It's very hard to absorb information when you're stressed, anxious, and scared to death. So I always recommend to bring somebody. Um, Oh, to never be afraid to get a second opinion. I think particularly when you're dealing with a disease where there is a lot to lose, um, it never hurts to get a second opinion on how to how to manage or how to approach a cancer, um, particularly if you're in an area where this is really easily accessible to you. You know, unfortunately, if you live in a more rural area, there may only be one or two medical oncologists that that you know are are seeing patients in that area, but. Um, it can help a lot to get a second opinion on a case. Number one, just because it provides some reassurance that you're on the right track. In most cases, you know, the the second opinion will probably agree with the first. Um, the other the other benefit of giving getting a second opinion is the possibility that um, you may be eligible for a clinical trial. So particularly for patients with newly diagnosed pancreas cancer, most of the clinical trials that are out there um, aren't randomizing or aren't putting some patients on a placebo and some patients getting treatment. No doctor in their right mind would put a patient on that sort of study. But it's good to look for clinical trials because it might be an opportunity to, number one, get something that could be more effective in treating the cancer, and number two, kind of for the greater good, it kind of helps advance our understanding and knowledge of the disease. Um, and I guess the last thing is to find a, a doctor that you're very comfortable with and that you trust, because a huge part of dealing with this diagnosis and kind of the treatment of this disease is emotional. There's a lot of kind of ups and downs through the treatment, good days, bad days. There's a lot of anxiety about scans, a lot of decisions um, based on how somebody is tolerating a treatment. And if a patient has a good relationship, really trusts their doctor, that goes a lot more easily than a patient who just, you know, doesn't seem to have have the trust, is constantly wondering, is something, is there something else that could be done? Are they doing something right? And that's not, it's not a problem with the patient, and often it's not a problem with the doctor. It's just that you kind of have to have a good chemistry. It's kind of like dating. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have some patients who I've recommended that they get a second opinion because it's just, it's very clear that they're not comfortable with the decisions I'm making. And sometimes it's the actual decisions. Sometimes they just may not be comfortable with the way I communicate. And again, it's it's not a problem with the patient. I don't think it's a problem with me, but it's just kind of a chemistry thing. And so finding a doctor who who you trust, who you're confident in, who you can, you know, if something doesn't feel right, if something's new, you can reach them, talk to them about it. Those things are just critical in um, kind of going through this this journey of being treated for pancreas cancer. I think I just took notes and two things that stuck out that I wrote down, that other person and then being comfortable. And I think, you know, I, I think that is critical that um, that you have those two are, are like priority in my mind. And when I look back at my experience, you know, the first doctor that we treated, uh, that treated my dad, we didn't feel comfortable, we went elsewhere. Um, and to your colleagues out there, and, and, and maybe you will um, see where I'm going with this, we get it. You guys have done all the the schooling, and you're are super intelligent, and you're trying to save lives. But that still sometimes doesn't mean that uh, 
you can't have compassion or talk to patients in a certain way. If you understand what I'm saying, Dr. Clutie, I, yeah, I yeah. you know, I think there's some doctors that are very tactful and, and, you know, um, are very, not to say that they don't care and others care more, but I think there's a way of saying things in a way that, and some patients do well with that directness and other patients don't. And so I think what you just said to summarize is like, you have to feel comfortable. Like you said, it's like dating, right? Like if you don't feel yeah. comfortable, like move on. Cause there's a lot of doctors out there and there's a lot of really good doctors. Oh, in the sea. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also having that other person, I, I think the one thing, the other thing that I wrote here too, um, and I think this is something that I see every time I talk to a patient is this sense of urgency. And I just want to hear your perspective on this because you mentioned second opinion. And I always stress to people like go out and get a second opinion. Like we're not saying wait six months to get treatment, but two weeks, three weeks, that's not going to change things all that much. And you should be able to get into a major, like if you're at a rural hospital, um, you know, there's plenty of resources, us, there's other groups that can facilitate appointments with a major high volume pancreatic cancer center like a UNMC or there's many others across the country. But what is your like feeling on this second opinion and, and this whole time? Because I, I feel like I had a patient call in and they wanted a second opinion, but the hospital where they were first diagnosed, like they got diagnosed on Monday and then they scheduled the port and chemotherapy on, they scheduled the port placement on Wednesday and then the first chemotherapy on Friday. And the patient was like scared to death that they, if they didn't get this first chemotherapy treatment in, that they were going to be, you know, it was going to be critical to their long-term progress or, you know, with regards to their treatment, you know, for the disease. Yeah, it can, I mean, it can be tricky. I think part, you know, I, huh, let me say this. In most cases, you, you know, getting a second opinion, especially for a patient with a stage four cancer, the second opinion's not going to be much different. So do you need to get the second opinion before you start the first chemo? Not necessarily. But what I would say is that the doctor taking care of you is not going to be offended or shouldn't be offended by the possibility of you getting a second opinion. I actually have patients who see me and then, you know, you kind of find out because they're asking my team to help get their records that they're getting a second opinion and kind of going through all this work to try to get everything together. And mm -hmm. half the time I'm like, I would have told you who to see. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would have been happy to call them to see if they could see you and kind of facilitate it. So I think, too... I think patients have a lot of fear about telling their doctor that they want a second opinion because they worry it's going to offend them. It shouldn't. In fact, many of us are more than happy to help facilitate the second opinion and are very welcome to any input on, you know, how could, how, what more could I do for this patient? They may be able to expedite it and kind of work the plan for starting treatment around it. Thank you, because uh, I think, you know, sometimes when we say it, um, I always say that there's just something, right? Like if you say it, they don't believe it, but if they say it, they believe it. And, I, you know, clearly coming from uh, an expert in the field, I think is important for patients and our listeners to hear this, that, you know, a second opinion, you know, isn't always uh, a bad thing. And I, I think sometimes there's that, there's just a, it seems like there's this sense of urgency and I get it. You know, we were there with my dad and, you know, there seemed like there was a sense of urgency there in the, in the very beginning. Um, but I, I think it's important though, going back to what you said is having a clear understanding and having that other person in the room. So they're able to kind of, uh, digest and also reiterate what the doctor said, because a lot of times the patient's not listening. They they've checked out because they have other things on their mind clearly with the, the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I think for most patients, the worst part emotionally of, of the diagnosis is the time between starting, you know, getting the diagnosis and starting the treatment. Yeah. And for most patients, the treatment's not as bad as they think. You know, they hear chemo and think horror stories. 
And like I mentioned, we have a lot of good ways to support patients getting chemotherapy. And for many people, it's not so bad. And so, you know, that kind of period between you get the bad news and waiting for what is the plan, how is it going to affect my life, what am I going to be able to do while I'm getting treatment, kind of that part where there's so much unknown is often the worst part for people. So, you know, getting treatment started often can kind of relieve some of that emotional stress. Um, so I get that, you know, there, there is some urgency and I think that does play into it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time again out of your busy schedule to talk to us here at the Project Purple podcast. I know our listeners are going to get a lot of great stuff out of this podcast. And the last thing that I want to give our listeners um, that you could explain is, so if we have patients, families, or someone listening to this podcast that heard something and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for those, I mean, we, we know you're in Nebraska, in Omaha, so for the Omaha community or the Nebraska community, clearly they can schedule an appointment at University of Nebraska Medical Center at the Fred and Pamela Buffett Cancer Center to meet with you if they are uh, you know, a pancreatic cancer patient. But maybe from afar, I know you just joined Twitter not too long ago. I know we're Twitter friends. I've been on Twitter for a couple of years now. I just don't tweet very much, but they can find me on Twitter. My phone alerts me if somebody tweets about me. But Dr. Clutie, you should not be, as I said to another surgeon or oncologist the uh, the other day, we don't expect you to be on Twitter. I know uh, Twitter is a very fascinating uh, medium right now within the scientific community. I know there's a lot of groups that are, you know, creating awareness. I know on certain days, clearly, there's going to be a lot of, you know, tweeting, I guess, uh, you know, on World Pancreatic Cancer Day and, you know, in November being Pancreatic Cancer Month, I'm sure, you know, the community as a whole uh, will be on there more often than maybe any other, you know, time during the year. But for those in the in the community, or from afar, if they need to, uh, if they want to contact you about questions, possibly about their diagnosis or a family's diagnosis, what's the best way to reach them? Because I know Twitter's probably, you know, we were joking about Twitter. That's more for sharing information and, you know, within the community and for those who follow you. But what's the best way, you know, from a, from a standpoint to reach out and get to get to hold of you if they have a concern about the disease? Oh, they can email me. You want me to give my email? Yeah, letter? absolutely. It's up to you. If you want to give your email, just know this is going out on the podcast, so it's out there yeah. for public consumption. No, it's totally fine. Kelsey.cludy at unmc.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for all you're doing there in Nebraska. I know, you know, everyone thinks, you know, you're kind of siloed there, but you're not because what you guys are doing there, I know we're sharing with our other partners across the country. And I know you're very involved within that community and then also the pancreatic cancer community as a whole globally as well. So um, we appreciate the partnership and I know you're part of the family here at Project Purple. So thank you for all you do. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Clutie. And that's a wrap.